It's good to see you guys. If you don't know who I am, my name is Devonte McLean. I'm a member here at Redeemer Odessa, and I am part of the Bertrands Group, which meets at the Houses House. I enjoy saying that a lot. Um, so today we will be reading from, I'll be reading from Mark 5, verse 21 until verse 43. So I'll give you all a chance to get there. Again, that's Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to verse 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Thanks, Dev. I also, let's jump in. I want to let y'all in on a little secret. Uh, academically, my college experience was kind of a joke. Uh, I had plans to go straight through my undergrad and into a master's program that didn't require a certain degree. It just required a degree. So I was thinking in my head, what would be helpful for me long-term as a pastor 
but not so helpful that I won't have time for a very vibrant and active social life and a very uh, illustrious career in intramural sports. What would be beneficial to me but not prevent me from just having a good time? Uh, I found that degree plan. It was known as Human Development and Family Studies. I knew I had picked the right degree because my first day of college at Texas Tech University, there was a guy in my class sitting down the row from me who I had seen on TV the fall before as like an All-American wide receiver for our football team. Uh, That dude was at our school for one reason and one reason only. He was trying to get to the NFL. Uh, He was not at all concerned about school. I know this because that was the only day he ever came to that class. So I turned around, and there were two guys on the basketball team. The year before, our basketball team had gone to the Sweet 16. Um, And then the rest of the class was made up of sorority girls. So after I gave myself the customary pat on the back, for achieving supreme levels of laziness at my parents' expense. Uh, I regret this now. Uh, I got to work to put together an elite intramural softball team. But school's a lot harder than I expected it to be. I learned that my degree wasn't completely laughable. And so after the first semester of being at Tech, I found myself on what they call academic probation. So I buckled down. I got my GPA back up. I did something that I never, ever had to do at school before, and that was try. So I rallied. Uh, I started taking some classes that were built around counseling and, and theories of human development and some things pertaining to trauma and how that affects us long term. Here's what I can tell you. Humans are complicated. Our brains are just very complicated, and I learned a lot of stuff, and I learned some stuff that has been good and helpful, and so here's a couple of things that I learned that I think will be good and helpful to us today. Humans are born with one innate fear, and that is the fear of falling. If you've ever seen a newborn like unswaddled and uncuddled, uh, their arms and legs are flailing about, uh, We're born with one concern and one concern only, and that is, am I about to get dropped? Beyond that, most everything else is a learned behavior. By the time we're two years old, most everything has been hardwired in us. So much of what happens to us at a young age impacts us all the way through the rest of our life. Especially if we experience trauma at a young age, it impacts us as adults. At a deep level, we come out of the womb wanting to know two things. And really needing to know two things. Am I loved? Do I matter? And honestly, we spend so much of our lives trying to figure out the answers to those questions. So... Let me see if I can help you this morning arrive or start your journey towards having these questions answered. We're back through our walk through the Gospel of Mark. Our text today is a continuation of the previous three weeks. Um, Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus sleeping in a boat while there is a storm raging around him. And his disciples in the boat with him wake him up shaking, 
shaking him like saying, do you not care about us? Jesus, do you not care that we are about to die? And Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm with a word. Then Jesus and his disciples finish their journey across the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as they step off the boat, they are confronted with a man that is possessed by what we learn is a legion of demons. Literally thousands of demons. And Jesus provides the disciples with an answer to their question. Jesus meets these, this guy's need. He casts out the demons. Then he commissions him out to the region to proclaim the goodness of God. So the reality that we have to come to terms with in these two texts are this. I want you to remember this. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. Jesus sees and knows our very existences. Jesus led these disciples into this storm. This storm did not catch Jesus off guard. Jesus orchestrated an event in the life of the disciples in order to increase their faith. I want to submit this also to you this morning. God's desire is for us to be holy. God wants holiness for us. God's desire is not for you to be ruled by sin. God's desire is for people to not be possessed by demons. However, people are not holy. People can be ruled by sin. And people can become possessed by demons. And here's my submission. God can still get glory and honor in these circumstances. We see Jesus showing up and redeeming this de demonic, sinful life and his pitiful condition and calling this man into the family of God. Church, God is sovereign. God is in control even when it feels like he isn't. This demon-possessed guy had been driven to despair by this army of demons, and God was merciful and this man became likely the first missionary to the region of Galilee. The Decapolis is what our text says. The other question the disciples ask is, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now we're seeing not just nature obeys Jesus, but Jesus is yet again powerful over the spiritual realm. And in our text today, we're going to see a continuation of the story. And so I'm going to place before you for the third week in a row the same questions that the disciples asked two weeks ago and ask you again to consider them in your hearts and in your minds. Who is Jesus to you? I think a lot of us can assent mentally to the fact that Jesus is God. We like Jesus. Jesus is cool. I think a lot of us take a view of God as like a taskmaster or some hard-nosed disciplinarian father. My hope over the course of our walk through the Gospel of Mark, my hope is that when we are having these consistent encounters with Jesus, when we're seeing Jesus meet people in need, the Holy Spirit will be diligent in reminding us of who God truly is. May we see and may we allow God to reshape our understanding of who he is and his will for our lives and align our views of him with scripture. And the other question we have to ask is, Jesus, do you care about me? 
Jesus, do you care about me? Or to bring it back to what we said a minute ago, Jesus, do you love me? Jesus, do I matter? So much in this world and so much in our own lives can lead us to question his love for us. So much can lead us to question his nearness to us, especially in the midst of trial and suffering. My hope for this morning is that we can ask these questions, that we can, we can wrestle with our doubts, we can wrestle with our fears, we can ultimately come to a proper view of God and his goodness and his grace to us. My hope for this morning is that we will take a biblical view of suffering from our text. Listen, I don't know if I can soften the blow at all of whatever hard you're dealing with, but I do want to tell you this. Whatever it is you are walking through, man, there's purpose in it. And I don't want this to be like another box check for us or another task or another burden to you as you consider Christianity. Man, the Lord invites us to engage with him, to engage him with any unbelief about him. The Lord invites you to wrestle with the fear and anxiety in your own hearts because he already knows what you're dealing with. He knows you better than you know you. So let's submit all of our fears, all of our anxieties, all of our worries, all of our unbelief onto the Lord this morning. Let's pray before we jump in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray for mercy and grace this morning, Lord, that you would be diligent to root out any unbelief, Lord, that you would be near to the brokenhearted, that you would save crushed spirits this morning, Lord Jesus. Lord, be near, be gracious. Lord, be glorified, be magnified in your place this morning. Lord, help us to love you more. Lord, we want to trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So this is a continuation of the stories over the last few weeks. Jesus was teaching to a large crowd, and then he got into a boat, and he and his disciples started off to the other side. That's when the storm happened. And that's when Jesus calmed the word with the storm. And when they got to the other side, they encountered the man with the demon. Uh, the people in the region became upset with Jesus because of the pigs. If you remember, Jesus cast the demons out. They entered a pig herd. And then there was like a mass pig suicide where they ran over a cliff and into the sea and drowned. So Jesus' presence and power created more fear in the people than the presence uh, and the strength of the guy who had been possessed by a demon. So Jesus, not staying where Jesus is not wanted, gets back in the boat, and he heads back to where he came from. This is all taking place in one day. Can you imagine? You're one of the disciples. You get in the boat, huge storm. You think you're going to die. Jesus calms the storm. You get to the other side of the boat. This dude's running at you like, Full speed, possessed by a demon, clearly not right. You think you're going to die again. Uh, and, like, what a crazy day these dudes are having. 
And so they get back in the boat and they head back to the other side of the lake. And as soon as he hits the shore, the crowd gathers around him yet again. He cannot go anywhere. And look what happens. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Jairus is a, is a ruler of the synagogue, and he shows up. He falls down at Jesus' feet. We see this last week with the demons falling at Jesus' feet too. But this isn't the same type of, of behavior. The demons fall down because they know who it was that they were facing. Jesus' presence with the demons meant destruction for the demons. Jairus, on the other hand, he's a ruler of the people. He humbles himself, and in submission to Jesus, he submits his request. The demons are trying to manipulate Jesus. Jairus is coming to Jesus in his desperation. Jairus is approaching Jesus at great personal and professional risk. If you remember from earlier text uh, in, in our walk through Mark, the religious leaders of the day are plotting against Jesus' life. So here comes Jairus, one of these religious leaders, and he's begging Jesus for help. And he says, my daughter is sick, and she's about to die. The Gospel of Luke, when it retells the story, says that this is Jairus' only daughter. And Jairus says, I need your help. I've heard about you. I know that you are the only person that can help me. Please, please, please come with me. Man, this is a great model for prayer and petition for us. Jairus asked Jesus in faith, directly, and earnestly, and in humility. And Christ has not only saved us from God's wrath, but because of the cross, we've been adopted into God's family, and we're now a child of God. If you are in Christ, you are now a child of God. Church, how much we rob ourselves of intimacy with our Father, how we rob ourselves of deep relationship with our Father when we don't pray. What a great example of faith for us to follow. So Jesus gets up. He goes with Jairus. And as he is walking along, he gets intercepted. One thing I love about Jesus' ministry here is like Jesus never seems to be in a hurry. Jesus is never swayed by the agenda of others. He sees a person in need, and he stops to help. Verse 25 says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And a couple things to take note of here. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Meaning whatever disease she has, 
She is considered unclean by the Jewish law, meaning so for 12 years she cannot go to the temple. She has no fellowship with others because of her disease. And this is also an argument from silence, but I'm going to make it. This lady has no family, or she would not have been with Jesus by herself. Uh, Her children would have been taking care of her because that's what the law expected of them. So we can assume she has no children. We can assume she's not married. The text says she spent all of her money on doctors who couldn't help her, but the doctors still got paid. So in her desperation, she like elbows wide, pushes her way through this crowd, uh, thinking, I just need to touch this guy's robe. There's a huge crowd pressing around Jesus, but there is one woman in this crowd that actually connects with Jesus in faith. Man, think about what that must have been like. So desperate was she physically that she pushed her way through a crowd of people, little old lady, pushing her way through a crowd just to touch Jesus. The text says that she was immediately healed and that she felt it. She knew it was gone. Physically well and whole for the first time in 12 years, Christ had just healed her body. But that's not all that takes place here. Look at the response of Jesus. Verse 30, it says, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I think the first part of this exchange is hilarious. Uh, Jesus knew something had happened, so with the crowd of people around him, he goes, Who touched me? I feel like I have this conversation in my house every single day, multiple times a day. The other day I came into our kitchen and there was like a giant puddle around uh, our kitchen table. So I called all my kids together and I said, Hey, who did this? And they all pointed at somebody else. This scene is like teenage girls at a Justin Bieber concert, like just crowding around him. Um, His disciples looked at each other, and they were like, is this man serious? Jesus, look at all these people. There is no way to know who touched you. But Jesus is dead set on figuring out who touched him. So the woman, who had been bleeding, she comes to him in fear. She comes to him trembling. The text says she comes to confess what she had done. Can you imagine not knowing the response she's about to get? Is he going to be mean to her? Is he going to chastise her? There's all these people around. Is she going to be further outcast based on what Jesus is about to say and do? She has no idea. She approaches him fearfully. She comes to confess what she had done. Are we about to see this hard taskmaster, this firm disciplinarian that we so often project onto God? Look at how Jesus responds. Jesus does something incredible. 
Jesus, the Son of God, member of the Trinity, equal with God in essence and divinity. This Jesus who always acts in agreement with God the Father and God the Spirit because he is God the Son. This Jesus, look at what he does. First he calls her daughter. This means more than just like a physical miracle has taken place. This means more than her health has improved. By calling her daughter, Jesus is now welcoming her into his family. She's now no longer just physically healed. She's spiritually healed as well. Man, if Jesus is willing to call her daughter, if he's willing to heal her, and he is in unity with God the Father, what does that tell us about the nature and character of God? Christ sees her faith. And it is counted to her as Christ's righteousness. He says, your faith has made you well. You go in peace. And, and this is a very important and because it means two things have occurred. And be healed of your disease. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this about the Father's love for us. The atoning work of the Son was something the Father and Son delightedly agreed to together in eternity past. The Son's intercession does not reflect the coolness of the Father, but the sheer warmth of the Son. Christ does not intercede because the Father's heart is tepid towards us, but because the Son's heart is full towards us. But the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. That's amazing. This woman is now completely a new person. Do not stop at the miracle of physical deliverance. That is good. That is praiseworthy. But if we stop at that, Jesus remains purely just a miracle worker. Jesus not only heals her physically, but he also meets her greatest need. He delivers her spiritually. He heals her sin-sick soul. She has been saved. She's been saved both physically and spiritually. First and foremost, Jesus looks at this lady and says, Your faith has made you well and be healed of your disease. Her primary need, her spiritual healing, has been met. And then her secondary need, her physical healing, has been met also. But don't forget how the story started. We got this dude Jairus standing by waiting Jesus to get a move on. Think about what that would be like. Your only daughter is sick and dying. The only guy that can help you on the entire earth is tearing about with this old lady. Daniel Aiken in his commentary made some notes about how similar Jairus and this nameless woman are. He said they knew Jesus was the only person that could help them. They also knew they were unworthy of Jesus' help, which is evidenced by the way they approached Jesus. The woman got what she was seeking. But things for Jairus are about to go from bad to worse, it seems. Verse 35. It says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter James and John, the brother of James. Jesus hears this and he's undeterred. It seems all hope is gone and Jesus responds to Jairus. 
hey, Jairus, I'm still here. We're still going to go. I'm not distracted. I'm not disinterested in what you're going through. Just trust me, and let me show you what I'm going to do. Man, think about the last two weeks. Jesus calms a storm with a word. Jesus heals a man who has thousands of demons inside of him. Jesus just heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Even if your daughter is dead, Jairus, hope is not lost. So he takes with them the inner three, Peter, James, and John. This is the first time we see Jesus separate them from the rest of the group, and it won't be the last. In verse 38, it says, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside took the child's father and mother and those who were with them, and he went in where the child was. So they show up to this house, and there's these professional mourners there. I'm not sure why they had these people in this culture, but they did. Anytime somebody would die, these folks would show up crying, and they'd wailing, and they'd make a huge commotion. They'd sob uncontrollably. The more status the family had, the greater the wailing. Um, it was, it's just a show. So this guy's a ruler of the synagogue. So there are a fair amount of professional criers there. Um, this was their moment. This is the criers' moment. They were making the most of their tantrum like a toddler in the cookie aisle at H-E-B. Uh, and Jesus calls them on it. Here's a few reasons why these cry baby adults are problematic. Number one, they're very insincere. They don't care about this little girl or her family. This is just like a spectacle for them. The other reason these people are problematic in this story is Jesus wants to call them out and push them towards faith. This is not the time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. Because Jesus is about to triumph over death with life. Instead of accepting Christ by faith, based on his activity up to this point, the people still had hard hearts, and they refused to believe him. So their mourning had turned to ridicule of Jesus. They were laughing at Jesus. So Jesus sends everybody out but Peter, James, and John, and the little girl's parents, and he enters the room where she was laying. Verse 41, it says, Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jairus had asked Jesus just to come and touch her. Just come her, touch her. She's dying. Her dead, lifeless body. Jesus is breaking with uh, all cultural expectations of him, all norms and expectations of Jewish people at the time. And he goes in and he touches her. But then he goes further than anyone expects him to go. He gently and lovingly and tenderly takes this young child by the hand. And he speaks to her in her native tongue. 
just like her mother had probably done so many times, gently trying to wake this little girl up from her sleep. This little girl had been restored. Like the nameless woman from earlier, we see this nameless child receive both physical and spiritual healing to the amazement of all, everybody all around. And Jesus saves. Jesus saves and was pleased to act regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of class, or any other barrier that we could put in place. Jesus meets needs without distinction. Jesus honors all of them who come to him in faith. So sometimes when we approach narrative texts like this, it's hard to kind of arrive at any application, like, what does this have to do with us? I think there are a number of things we can glean from this story and passages like this. Remember the questions we started with. Who is Jesus? Am I loved? Do I matter? Does Jesus care about me? Daniel Aiken says that texts like these, and all of Scripture for that matter, invite us to ask a few questions. So I'd like to borrow his questions uh, for our time today and ask, like, when you're reading devotionally, maybe use these questions to, to, to ask yourself uh, over the passage of Scripture you're reading as well. Um, number one, what does this text teach me about God? God honors all people that come to him through faith, in faith through Christ. Regardless of your position in society, regardless of your gender or your age or any other distinction, this is true. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of how bad your lot in life seems to be, as we saw in our text last week with the demon-possessed guy, God honors those whose faith is in Christ. We see that in the man of distinction today. We see that in the outcast woman today. We see that in the little girl today. God does truly indeed love the world like Jesus says in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, but will have life eternally. So that's what this text teaches us about God. What does this text teach me about sin and humanity? Man, death and disease are ever-present realities because of the fallenness and the sinfulness of the world in which we live in. Sin has broken absolutely everything. Because of sin, everything is marred. Man, our world is in need of saving. Our world is in need of redemption. Number three, what does this text teach me about Jesus? Jesus cares for the hurting. Jesus also works in his timing. Jesus touches the unclean and he transfers the, his cleanliness to them and takes on their uncleanness. Jesus gives healing and life to those who trust in him as he takes on our diseases. He also gives those who trust in him life and he died a death that we should have died. 
and he rose from the grave. When Christ takes on the cross, our sin is then transferred to him and his righteousness is transferred to us. Jesus gives power to the powerless through his death, through his resurrection, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus cares. What does God want you to know? Number four, what does God want me to know? We can come to Jesus with our request, no matter who we are or what we've done. We must come to Jesus in faith, believing and not fearing. God honors imperfect faith from a sincere heart. God, let me rephrase that, I think I said that wrong. God honors imperfect faith from a sincere heart, from a sincere heart. When the object of that faith is Jesus Christ. Church, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be clean and living right for God to love you. God loves you in spite of you. In spite of everything you've ever done. In spite of every sinful deed or thought you have ever had. Christ knows. And Christ still wants you. And Christ is still calling you into faith and dependency in him. The cross tells us that this is true. So the invitation for you is to repent and believe that Jesus is better. In him, there is life eternal. So what does God want me to do? God wants you to come to him. God wants you to come to him with any request and every request you have. God wants you to trust him regardless of the circumstances or situations you find yourself in because he can be trusted to heal our diseases. But more than that, he can be trusted to conquer our great enemy, sin and death. We know this because of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. Am I loved? The cross says you are. Do I matter? The cross says you do. I know it's hard. Life squeezes us. But what if instead of what if instead of wanting our life and our heart to get easier? What if we leaned into Jesus in faith and dependency and asked that God would use our hard circumstances for our good and for his glory? Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign even over death. What if we prayed that God would strengthen our faith instead of taking us out of our heart? God, would you deliver me before you have, de- would you develop me before you have delivered me? Christ wants us in our best, but our best is only found in him. We can't be the best apart from Christ's grace and mercy to us. The only good in us is because of Christ in us. So in order to achieve the perfection that Christ is calling you to, Christ wants us in our weakness. 
Christ wants us to lean wholly and dependently upon his grace. So he can grow us and strengthen us in him. What if we got to the end of our life and nothing was ever hard? We didn't experience any kind of difficulty and we missed Jesus in the process. That would not be a win. Christ uses hard situations, difficult situations in our lives to bring us into fellowship and faith and dependency with him. So I don't know what you're going through, but Christ does, and Christ cares, and Christ loves you. So rest in him. Lean on him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would continue to remind us that you do care, that you do love us. Lord, that because of the cross, we do matter to you. Lord, help us to see our life as opportunities for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. Lord, may we trust you in the hard. Lord, I do pray that you would deliver us from hard circumstances, Lord, from emotional pain, from from mental pain, from physical pain. Lord, deliver us from that. Not before you have given us yourself. Not before you have grown us in faith and the likeness of your son. Make us more like Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.